0: are back y'all I'm not as cool as Michael Jordan so I can't announce our return via a two word fax to all media outlets in the globe so this is just going to have to do I'm Daniel Mullins Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast is back after a hiatus that lasted way too long I have some very cool guests coming up uh, that I have recorded some uh, very insightful interviews with over the last couple of years. And I'm glad to finally, finally, finally get to share those with you. As always, go to com to learn more about what we're doing. Be sure to give us a like and a follow on Facebook, Instagram, all that great stuff. That is a great way that you can keep up with what we're doing and you can support the podcast. So bringing these stories from these great leaders and legends of bluegrass to the masses. Yeah. Oh, here on Season 3, we will be sitting down with uh, Hall of Famers, with Grammy Award winners, with Living Legends, and more. We're going to start Season 3 with my dear friend Jamie Daly of Daly and Vincent, a member of the Grand Ole Opry. I have known Jamie Daly since I was about 8 or 9 years old when he first joined up uh, with Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver. I've always looked up to Jamie and have always counted him as a friend. It was a real uh, blessing during the throes of COVID uh, to make a little trip to Nashville. I was helping out with the IBMA Bluegrass Music Awards show, the, the pandemic edition in 2020, filmed at the Ryman Auditorium. And I was glad to be able to take a little break from filming and slide over and hang out with Jamie Daly for an afternoon. We sat down in his kitchen and had an absolute ball. It was a rewarding and insightful conversation with Jamie about his childhood, his time with Dual Loss and Quicksilver, and the rise of Daly and Vincent. I think you're going to learn a lot, and of course, as always, when you're hanging around Jamie, you're going to have a lot of laughs as well. Let's take a trip to Nashville, Tennessee, and hang out with our pal Jamie Daly, here on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. So, Jamie, when did you first perform on stage?
1: When I was three years old, I would go out with my dad's gospel group, the Four Js, and I would get up on stage and bang a tambourine against my leg and hang on to his britches leg, you know. And uh, then I started singing on stage with him around five, six years old, but I would only sing one song and then go back and sit with mom, you know, so that's that was uh, the first time.
0: What about growing up around uh, a musical family and seeing music in church, what about that spoke to you at such a young age?
1: I think it's just who we, we are, who we were, who we are, um, just how we grew up, and it's how we were raised. And so being able to sing in church um, on Sundays with my dad and family, uh, it contributed to to helping me be who I am musically
0: was music an important part of your faith as well what, do of you see, do you see a combination there?
1: Of course it is yeah uh, you know of course we sing secular music on the road and do secular albums but uh, and a secular shows but always um, at least a 15 or 20 minute portion of our stage show, is gospel music. We'll do four or five gospel songs, uh, our little gospel portion within our stage show. So it's who we are, and it's a big part of uh, who we are, who we want to be, what we love, and what we know. It's in our DNA. And not only that, but on our national television show, uh, we've been on TV for five years now. Every television show, we end with a gospel song around the piano. It's very important to us. And not only that, but we, uh, before we do the closing gospel song, we give a Bible verse from the Bible and then sing the song. It's very important yeah. to us.
0: It re- reminds me of, you know, we've all seen Walk the Line. Mm-hmm. We know Johnny Cash and about mm-hmm. how there's so many ways that you can express your faith. And there's the the line that, you know, it's Johnny and his mm-hmm. brother talking about how, well, you know, you know every verse in the Bible. And he says, well, you know every song in Mama's hymn book. And there's there's all kinds of different ways that we can... We can speak to people with our faith, and, and you grew up around people that did that through music.
1: Absolutely, I did. My dad, my parents, you know, both my parents, my grandparents, my grandmother, Daisy Daly, when I was three or four years old, I remember she used to sing these beautifully, yet hauntingly, but lovingly sounding old gospel songs that she said were from the Tennessee mountains where she grew up. And I give anything had we recorded it, somehow, but we never did. And I can't remember what they are, but I can still hear some of it in my head today. I wish, I wish I could have recorded it.
0: Yeah. It, was it the, uh, the the gospel connection that first drew to you to the music of Dole Austin Quicksilver?
1: Well, first I was drawn to to music by my dad's group, the Four J's, mm-hmm. and then when I was nine years old. My dad bought me a cassette tape of country music group, uh, country music quartet, the Statler Brothers. Oh, yeah. And I heard a song uh, called Elizabeth, and I, I fell down in the yard as I was running around the yard, and he had my boom box out there on a retaining wall. <clears throat> he put that tape in, and I heard Elizabeth, and I got down in the grass and just stared at the boom box. Couldn't believe what I was hearing. I asked him about it, and he told me who they were. And then the next song had this guitar kickoff that is so it, the identity to it sounded like nothing else and it was a song called I'll go to my grave loving you and that's what made me fell fall in love with country music yeah and they became my first heroes then fast forward about that same time I started to learn to play electric bass and then my dad moved from gospel music over to bluegrass music and then I started playing banjo I played in the new script for a while banjo and then guitar and upright bass And then about 16 years old, 15 or 16, I was taken to a concert in uh, Tompkinsville, Kentucky, at the Little Opry up there to see an act called Doyle, Lawson, and Quicksilver. And I fell absolutely in love with his Bluegrass and Bluegrass Gospel, and he became my next hero. (laughs) And uh, so I had all three bases covered with, with country and bluegrass and gospel. And then later on, I found the Happy Goodman family, and that made me fall in love with a lot of the, the Southern Gospel-style songs. So um, I would go up to Doyle after shows and say hi and get an autograph on a picture. And, of course, he didn't know me from Adam, and I would move on. And <laughs> when some blonde-headed some teenager. <laughs> from there on, from 15 years old, I, old on, I started singing a lot of his songs out with my regional band and I was singing songs like Julianne and on the sea of life and all the great Doyle songs and I was 22 years old and my good friend in Alabama Rick Jarman I was dating his daughter Jennifer and he was going to see Doyle and he had heard that Barry Abernathy and Jimmy Van Cleve was leaving and he knew I didn't play banjo anymore or fiddle but he told Doyle I "said you know if you ever need a high singer that uh, knows your stuff. There's a kid named Jamie Daly up in Gainesboro. So you should call him. Well, I didn't know he was going to call and I'd gotten home from work one day and the phone rang, I said, hello. And he said, this is Doyle Lawson. This is Jamie Daly there. So I thought it was a joke from some <laughs> friends of mine. And I said, yeah, all right, And I'm Bill Clinton. <laughs> and he said, son, this is Doyle Lawson. I said, yeah, right. And I'm Monica. And I just kept going on with it. You know, he said, do you have an ID caller? I do. And I went over and it said, uh, East Tennessee had an East Tennessee number, and I knew right then it was him. And I thought, "Oh God!" So I got back on the phone and I said, I, "I'm an idiot. I'm moving to another country." He was very stern. He said, hey, "I need you to come try out. I hear you know my songs, but you better know them. You got to know them if you're going to try out here." So, so I went, met him in Knoxville. Leave just, the Bill Clinton impression at home, right? Yeah, leave the Bill Clinton impression at home. And everybody else, you do. So I go to Knoxville and uh, just he and I in a room, and I play bass which I had not done in years, and sang some baritone and lead. He listened. He said, okay, come back uh, in two weeks. Come on up to Bristol, and I'm going to try you out with Quicksilver. Okay. So I get up there. It's Barry Scott, Dale Perry, Doyle Lawson, and me. And so – he kicks the song off, Julianne, and stops right before we even get started, Harley, and tells me all these things I'm doing wrong and how I've got to correct this and correct that. I mean, just wearing me out. I'm thinking, good God, this is over before it starts, you know. So we played some music for about 20 minutes, sang an acapella, and he started smiling when we started singing acapella. And we got finished, and he looked at Del Perry. He said, you hear that? He's got that blend. He's got that thing. You know, we got to – he said, I can work with this. So he excused Dale and Barry from the bus, set me down, and basically said, son, you got more bad habits in your singing and playing than you know what to do with, but I think it's in you, and I think I can get it out of you, but you're going to have to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. You've got the job. Be back in two weeks. I jumped up from the bus, ran with my base to the SUV, crammed it in there. I was so excited because I was going to go home and quit my job, you know, and I go across the parking lot, and Doyle runs down out there and waves me down, and I roll the window down, and he said, uh, Son, would you like to know what kind of money you're gonna be making? I had not even thought about it because yeah. I was doing it first because I loved the music. Yeah, and it's like, oh yeah, that might be a good idea to to explore that. And he told me. I went home, quit my job, and January first of nineteen, or uh, actually, yeah, January first of nineteen ninety nine, we did our very first show together in Jekyll Island, Georgia, at the Bluegrass Festival. I was there with Doyle for nine years. Yeah.
0: You mentioned how green you were when you started with Doyle. What were some of the things that that he taught you and helped you improve on to where you were better when you came out nine years later?
1: One of the biggest things I learned from Doyle that is very important, and we've tried to teach this to our band members as well as they come and go, is he taught me how to be a road professional, a courteous road professional, and what that basically means, how to travel in a bus with several other guys, you know, and try to keep organized and your stuff clean and the bus clean and and mindful of other people's privacy and, and uh, their goings-on. And um, then he taught us, taught me how to play in a band as a unit, not to be listening to just myself or paying attention to myself on stage but when I'm singing and playing, be listening to everyone else around me and play as a unit. Which I'm
0: sure, when you're 22, l- takes a little bit of uh, dose of humility because we're, we're all when we're all in our early 20s, that's kind of going to take a little bit of uh, little getting used to.
1: Fortunately, I knew that I didn't know much, <laughs> and I knew I didn't know nothing when it came to being a professional musician, and I knew Doyle knew it. Yeah. And so he never received any pushback from me about anything he told me to do, other than sometimes I was like, I don't know if I can do this. He said, yeah, you can do this. You're going to do this. And he would get it out of me and show me ways around it to to learn it and get it done. And to be honest, uh, and not disrespectful, but to be bluntly honest, a lot of groups that I hear today coming up, a lot of them are doing really great, and it sounds good, but there's some coming up that – to me sounds like they haven't had some of that teaching and it's not their fault but they haven't had a doyle or a ricky or a dale or a you know uh master of the bluegrass as i call it uh teach them the the approach of the art and um but i'm so glad that i got to 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 have that schooling
0: getting uh you know an apprenticeship almost like you did from from a master or mentor like Doyle, that really really had to pay pay dividends
1: it paid huge dividends and i will say that when you hear doyle kick off a song on a mandolin you don't have to guess who that is you know why because he doesn't sound like anybody else when you hear him sing he doesn't sound like anybody else when you hear Quicksilver. They don't sound like anybody else when you hear Ricky Skaggs play or sing. He doesn't sound like anybody else when you hear Alison Krauss. She doesn't sound like anybody else. They've got their own thing, and that's uh, I really, really admire that about those type of artists. Yeah.
0: When you first joined up with uh, with Quicksilver, and you, you know, you said he a lot of things you needed to work on. How long did it take before you felt like, you know, you said that you he he saw things in you that maybe you didn't necessarily see in yourself. How long did it take before you're like, you know what, I, I belong here?
1: A couple of years. About, about, about maybe the third year, I started thinking, okay, I'm starting to get the hang of this, and I know what I'm doing now finally, but I was still learning too. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. can never learn too much, yeah. and you can never think you're, too good or better than anybody else because there's always somebody better than you. And <laughs> that's just how the ball rolls. So about year number three, uh, I started feeling really good about it. Then he moved me from the upright bass to playing rhythm guitar where I was a little more comfortable. And I went through that schooling of his rhythm guitar, you know, uh, schooling. And because he, he – legendary for the type of rhythm
0: guitar – that he wants in Quicksilver.
1: Oh, yeah. It's a totally different rhythm guitar. Uh, in in Really and truly in Daly and Vincent, I can't play that style of guitar in the Daly and Vincent music Yeah, because it just doesn't fit the style we do. Yeah. Very interesting. Doyle's style of rhythm came from the Jimmy Martin School of Music. Yeah. And then my style of rhythm playing came from the Doyle Lawson yeah. you know, School of Music.
0: When you first joined up with Quicksilver, Doyle was doing predominantly gospel music at that time. I think the first three records you cut with Doyle were all gospel projects, and then he kind of cut his first secular record in a long, long time. What what was that transition of going from mainly gospel to doing more of a mix approach that Doyle has kind of maintained for the past 20 years or so?
1: I was was the one that really pushed for a secular record. Really? Because I had songs like Hard Game of Love that I had... Uh, Saying for years that I knew was a great song, and songs that I had written, like Poor Boy Working Blues and Girl in the Valley. And I'd also had another song that I had found when I was 15 called Girl from West Virginia. Absolutely. And so I knew those songs were great bluegrass songs and they needed to be cut. And I thought, man, before somebody else gets a hold of these, Doyle, you know, me and Quicksilver, we need to cut these things because I believe they'll be classics.
0: Because he's done, like, what, six, seven gospel records in a row.
1: Yeah, right. uh, something like that. I don't know the exact number. But, you know, it's interesting now. So we did that record, and we had Blue Train of the Heartbreak Line that Doyle found. It was the number one force. Hard Game of Love hit the charts. Poor Boy Working Blues uh, hit the Billboard charts. I've got, got it framed somewhere upstairs. Um, so it was the right call and i remember that we won song of the year we started winning vocal group of the year we won it won that 7 years in a row uh we won song of the year 2 or 3 years in a row there i think it was in gospel recorded performances and we had um, I think while i was with him we had five or six grammy nominations and so i'm glad we we did the bluegrass record it it was it was an absolute hit hard game of love was getting standing ovations every night and and so was Blue Train. It it was a it was a great time in bluegrass at that moment in time. Uh, just like I hear Doyle say, you know, back in the day it was really great when it was he was out with Jimmy and the Country Gentlemen. And but I remember back in those times we were traveling doing bluegrass festivals with the Osborn brothers, yeah, and Jim and Jesse, Larry Sparks, the Country Gentleman, the Lewis family. Uh, we were all on that run together. The Isaacs. And it was a grand time. And I remember the award shows were absolutely – the IBMA award shows were – I've not heard anything like it since. Everybody that was coming across that stage, Allison Krauss, Ricky Skaggs, Dale McCurry, Doyle Austin and Quicksilver, Rhonda Vincent, uh, Blue Highway, Third Time Out, the Lonesome River Band, people – they were coming across that stage absolutely, in in country terms, kicking tail and taking names. (laughs) And – Every act just about was getting standing ovations, and the crowd was so loud and raucous and rowdy, and so ready to hear it. And I don't hear that anymore. When I watch the IBM awards, um, I haven't attended in three or four years, but I do watch it online or try to. And it just doesn't. Seem, I don't know what's happened. It doesn't have that same thing that was going on back then, and I don't know why that is. But.
0: It, it was such an exciting time for our music, and you, you know, that's about what, that was that's when I was coming of age. And there was so much great music uh, coming out. It was and,
1: fantastic, yeah. and you know, then after that, coming out of that was "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?" hit right after that, and then it just took another yeah. influx, and it, it was just fantastic. And then you know, we had we have you know Steve Martin started coming around and bringing a whole brand spanking new wonderful dynamic to the awards show. It's so wonderful to see him there and doing what he does. And you knew he was there because he loved the music. Yeah. And he had studied it profusely and he was great at his art. Yeah. Uh, So it's wonderful to see that. And the year we had Dolly Parton there, it was wonderful. Yeah. Uh,
0: When you brought the idea of doing a secular record to Dole, was there any pushback?
1: I don't think there was any pushback. There might have been... There might have been a little bit of him being hesitant with it because I think he had to think about it. Uh, but once we started singing some of the songs, and I remember what happened now. Think, you're, you're jogging my memory on this. We were out in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and it was a sold-out show. And we had rehearsed Hard Game of Love maybe twice. Really didn't know what we were doing, what we were doing with it. And Doyle turned to me on stage in between songs and said, "You want to try a hard game of love?" Said, sure. So we tried it and we hit that big high thing that goes up. And Barry was wailing on the tenor and I was on lead and Doyle on baritone. We hit that part and that crowd came unglued. They had not done it; they'd not come unglued like that the whole show. But we hit that certain part and we got done with that song. They were out of the seats, going nuts, throwing babies in the air, nearly. You know. <clears throat> and Doyle was just smiling. I was like, "Well, this tells the tale here." So. We went in, and, and and I think that's what really helped us decide. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do the secular record.
0: What made that trio blend of you and Dole and Barry Scott so special? Because you know, twenty years later, it's still one that a whole new generation of today's bluegrass singers point to as one that really,
1: really lit lit their fire. I think there's only one way to explain that: the Lord. <laughs> I think. I don't think I know. God moves in seasons of change and time, and I believe God puts people together at certain times of their lives to create something that He wants to create. Uh, I don't have enough sense to create create anything like that. That was the Lord. Uh, it, it, nothing Doyle or Barry or I did. Um, we were put together for a reason. And boy, the time that it last that the three of us were together about seven years. It was, it was a grand time. And uh, we created some great, I think we created, bragging a little bit, I don't care to brag about it, we, we created some great music. But that, that season came and it went, and I knew when it was time to go. You, you, you mentioned your writing. and I'm one of the worst writers on earth. <laughs> Let me go ahead and get that out here in front of everybody. I don't like my writing.
0: You mentioned like poor boy working blues. It, had you started dabbling in writing before you
1: came with Quicksilver? Yeah, I was working at uh, Cummins Engine Company on a, on an assembly line. Mm-hmm. And during the breaks on the line, I'd grab a napkin, and I started writing, work all night, work all day, life just ain't worth living this way. Yeah. And kept writing the song in between breaks. And that was three years prior before I came with Doyle. So it was uh, a song I wrote called Girl in the Valley and mm-hmm. several others. Yeah. Uh, and Mississippi then the first- River, right? Mississippi yeah. River. Doyle helped me write that one. Yeah. But the first song I ever wrote was based on a true story called Just Let Me Fly. Yeah.
2: And on that, that,
1: That's on the first record you did yeah, with him, right? Yeah, that was a hit from, from night one on stage. It was yeah. unreal because I would tell the story, which was true, and then sing the song. It it was a hit. Tell me the story behind that song. There were some fans of mine uh, from around home before I went with Doyle. They Any festival I played at or any show, they were there. And they went missing for a while, and I didn't have a way to contact them, and they came back around about a year later. I was like, where were you guys? Said, she said, well, my mother had been sick, and – said uh, she got really sick and had gone in and had gone into a coma and then died, but the doctors brought her back to life. And when she woke up and came back to life, she was crying and just squalling and mad at the doctors and her family. Why did y'all bring me back? Said angels were, were almost near me and, and and asking me to fly. I was getting ready to just, why didn't you just let me fly? And that hung with me. I was like, why didn't you just let me fly? And I the more I thought about it, uh, she, she told me the story that her mother explained. a host of angels were coming for uh, and gra- you know reaching for uh, and we're, we're going to take her home. thought man, I can write a song about that. people need to hear that so I did. yeah
0: That song touched me at uh, when that record came out because um my uh, my mom's best friend was a lady wonderful lady named jennifer boggs Uh and um she had lupus real bad Mm. and uh she was in and out of the hospital a long time And there was one time she was in a coma for several months um that happened quite a few times and Uh there was a she went through an experience like that i'm so sorry when uh when she came back that's what she described Uh as angels coming and then uh you know, they, they turned around and, and left her. And so that one's always been special to my mom, especially. So,
1: oh well, yeah,
0: it was exactly, exactly what she described. And it, that came out, um, she, uh, she passed away around 99, 2000. So that one was really special.
1: Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry yeah. to hear that though, yeah. but
0: it's a special song. It's touched a lot of people, including me.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad it has. And uh, yeah. I think people need to hear songs like that along the way. Um, it can help change lives. Yeah.
0: There's an, there's another song that uh, – did you write Saving Grace or did you help no, find that one for Doyle? I found that. Uh,
1: uh, Jerry Sally had sent that over, and I heard it, and I really wanted to record it. The best I remember, I don't think Doyle was that, that wild about it at first. And then once we sang it on stage, people really responded. Then we wound up recording it. Yeah,
0: because yeah. that's that's another one that's really spoke to a lot of people during a very about Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah. yeah. What about you know those are those are subjects and and topics and songs that a lot of people don't record. Um,
1: I think for some people, it's too touchy for them. Yeah. And I think some people don't have the emotions to record them, whether they've dealt with dementia or Alzheimer's and just can't bring themselves to sing something like that. I think that's probably why we don't hear a lot of them. And um, I don't hear a lot of people writing those either, yeah. for whatever the reason.
0: Why do you think that when when you come across a, uh, a powerful subject like Just Let Me Fly or a song about dementia and Alzheimer's, like Saving Grace, that why do you think that... Uh, it's important to, important to record songs like that if you can.
1: I'll try to sum this up. You may hear a train in the background over there. Uh, I'll try to sum this up the best in a maybe a, a different approach. There's been many nights out on the road with Daly and Vincent. And one of the first nights I ever did this was at the Ryman Auditorium. We had sold out four years in a row, 2,400 seats at the Ryman. And that night we were sold out again, getting ready to get off the bus and go in the building. You know, the crowd, you could feel the energy. You could hear them inside. You know, it was just, we were getting really excited. So I called the band up front. Darren and I did. And I said, gentlemen, I said, I want all of you to realize something tonight. There are over 2,400 people sitting in that building. And within that 2,400 people, there is somebody that's either going through a divorce Somebody that's probably having financial troubles. Somebody that is severely depressed. There's probably someone here that has lost a loved one. And there's plenty of people here, I'm sure, that are sick in some way, whether it be cancer uh, or any kind of, you know, ailments that we don't know about. So there's people in that audience tonight that need to be uplifted. And I said it is our job as entertainers to go out there and take them on a 90-minute ride that it will hopefully make them feel better and send them out the door feeling better than when they came in and hopefully them leaving here with a smile on their face and a lot of joy in their heart. It is our job. Let's deliver. And they did. We went out there and forevermore delivered everything. I mean, we gave our heart and soul. I mean, it just uh, to the tune of, you know, we we wound up getting two or three on course. We finally had to quit because I was worn out. But but we started giving that pep talk more after that show because we were so blessed. I said, gentlemen, we are so blessed to be able to do what we do to begin with, to go out here and sing and play and make a living at it, and we're so blessed to be able to sell out venues after venue after venue all across America and overseas. I said, think about these artists and pickers and singers who are probably way better than we are that don't have the opportunity that we have. Yeah. Live it. Enjoy it and bless people with it
0: you you take your job as a musician so seriously not just the business side of it but just like what you just said that your job is to make people feel better and forget their problems or if they need a good cry music can do that if they need a good laugh entertainment can do that as well what brought you to that perspective of the greater purpose that music and entertainment serves in people's lives
1: I think growing up like I grew up, very modest, poor. I needed it as a kid. My mom and dad's divorced, my dad's health problems. And so I looked to entertainment and music and artists that would take me on the same ride that I wanted to take people on. Mm -hmm. The Statler brothers, when I was a kid, would take me on a ride. They'd make me laugh my tail off. But then they would tell stories in their song that was nostalgic and it was just wonderful And it took you to a place where you just wanted life to be like the song was talking about. Yeah. Uh, And then they would sing gospel songs that you could feel and make you love. And so I, I think that's why.
2: Shh, I've got a secret. My name is Santana Mullins. Daniel Mullins' wife, and for the last year, I've been stealing from him. Don't tell him, but I've been using a shampoo and conditioner from Samson's Hair Care. I noticed that even at the end of the day, Daniel's hair was still soft to the touch and smelled better than mine, so I had to sneak and give it a try. And I'm glad that I did. I have fallen in love It's the only brand of shampoo and conditioner I've found that holds their scent all day while leaving my hair feeling soft and well-nourished. If you want to see for yourself, visit samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save on your order. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. Ladies, be sure to buy your man Samson's shampoo and conditioner. You'll both thank me.
0: You you mentioned the Statler Brothers, and uh, I of, of course everyone knows D and V love the Statler Brothers, and I saw where you talked about this um, a few months ago when your friend Harold Reed passed away. Uh, you talk about laughing the Statler Brothers. I'm, I'm a big Lester Roadhog Moran fan.
1: We had him on one of our records. I,
0: that's what I was gonna say. Like I know that that and that was something that he he'd kind of had put it on a shelf for a little while.
1: He would never do it.
0: I, uh, how what was the how cool was it for you to get the Roadhog on a DNV song?
1: One of the coolest things in <laughs> my career. So I'll tell you how this came about. As you say, I'm the biggest Statler Brother fan ever because they were so unique, so different. I loved it. And we started singing some of their songs on stage, and, I mean, we were just getting people were just going nuts because the Statlers had retired at that time, so it was gone. They couldn't get it anywhere else. And so I loved quartet singing anyway. And I didn't love just gospel quartet singing. I loved country music quartet singing or bluegrass quartet singing. And so we started doing it. And in 2008, I I think it was 2008, we got a call from the Country Music Hall of Fame. And they said, keep this quiet, but we're going to induct the Statler Brothers into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And we want you in your quartet, you and Darren Vincent, in your quartet, to come and sing one of their songs as a surprise to them. Um, because we had been singing, you know, some of their songs, and, and uh, we said, absolutely. And so we get there, and... They get seated, and I, I, everybody from Vince Gill to Kenny Chesney's there in that Ford Theater. All the country music folks are there, and we're nervous. They have a house band that's all set up with Nashville's finest musicians. And the Statler Brothers' sons, Will and Langdon Reed, came out and sang a song they had written for the Statlers. that was very touching. And then Reba McIntyre came out, and she sang Flowers on the Wall, and she told the story. She said, you know, I was singing in smoky bars in Oklahoma to very few people. And she said, I'd gone to my husband, and I said, tomorrow night is it. I'm going to quit singing. This is it. I can't do this anymore, singing in the smoky bars and not getting anywhere. She said, the next night I'm on stage, and I see four silhouettes walk in to the bar area uh, off the side of the hotel. And she said, I kept looking. The closer they got to sit down, I recognized it was the Statler brothers. And, of course, that time they were humongous. They were selling out 15,000 seats a night, you know. And after she finished singing, they walked up to her and said, we want you to start opening our tours for us. Wow. And she started crying. And she said, had it not been for the Statler Brothers, there very well may have never been a Reba McIntyre yeah. or my career. Wow. Yeah, and she was really touched by it. And then we got up and we sang their hit, Do You Know You Are My Sunshine. And they didn't know we were there. And you could just see them smiling. We finished the song. They were the first four to give us a standing up wow. And then they had not sang since they retired in 2002. And uh, they got up to get their medallion ceremony. (laughs) And I'll never forget, Harold the bass singer, which those of you listening, if you don't know who he is or who he was, he was a very, very funny man. But he said in his big bass voice, he's, you know, my high school guidance counselor came to me six months before I graduated high school and said, Harold, what do you want to do with your life? He said, I want to sing bass in a quartet. She said, give it up, Harold, it'll never happen. (laughs) <laughs> came to me about three months later said, Harold, you're getting ready to graduate. What are you going to do with your life? He said, I'm going to sing in a country music quartet. She said, Harold, that will never, ever happen. He said, hot damn, I wish you was here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and he grabs his medal and he walks over to the where the house band is and the, 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 the band starts kicking in a song. I thought, my gosh, they're going to sing again. They had not sang and said they'd never sing another note when they retired. And they started singing "I'll Go to My Grave Loving You," and they sounded like they had never quit. Every artist, every family member, every guest there had tears in their eyes. And by the first course, all of us rose to our feet. We were just, I yeah. ah, just you're going. You're <laughs> Fan fanning boy, out, yeah. yeah, fanning out. So there, there, they were five special people: Lou, Jimmy, Harold, Phil, and Don. And then later on, we did a tribute album to them called Daily and Vincent Sing the Statler Brothers in 2010. And that brought us our very first, which is hanging on the wall over there, our very first mainstream country music Grammy nominations. So for a bluegrass band to cross over into that lane was unimaginable. And we wound up in the category with Lady Antebellum, Little Big Town, Zach Brown Band. I couldn't believe it. Lady Antebellum had Need You Now out, so it won everything. Yeah. And um, on the way out the back door, I called Hillary and, and uh, from Lady Annabellum, and I said, hey, uh, congratulations, uh, we just slit your bus tires. <laughs> and then we walked out. Of course, they were just <laughs> laughing. <laughs> yeah. Special time. But I, it was fun to call the Statlers and say, hey, you had a hit on Elizabeth in 1983, and you won a big awards with it. Yeah. 30 years later we've got a mainstream country grammy nomination on it and they just it was That's really touching. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Now, you told me before, you know, you guys had a grammy nominated version of Elizabeth.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And one time there were some people in a karaoke bar here in Nashville. They got to hear a uh, a version of Elizabeth as well.
1: So yeah, we, we were I was had some friends in town and they wanted to go to all the bars downtown and see it. They just wanted to check out the Nashville <laughs> downtown lifestyle so we go in this karaoke bar and they just kept going on get up there and sing get up there and sing so they had elizabeth you know uh so i got up and started singing elizabeth and unlike a karaoke uh, crowd i mean uh, the crowd went wild they were going nuts. like what in the world and I get off stage, these old ladies walk over and said, Oh my God, you need to record that song. If you ain't, you need to get out there and start singing and touring. You know, I didn't want to tell them I was already touring and singing, yeah. already recording, had a Grammy on it. Yeah. Grammy nom on it. So, yeah. Yeah. And then there was another time in, 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 in Las Vegas. This is a true story. We were out in Vegas singing and playing, and Jimmy Fortune of the Statlers happened to call me and say, Hey, buddy, what you doing? I said, We're out here in Vegas. He said, Buddy, you are kidding me. And I'm like, No. What, what's up he said i'm in vegas i said you gotta be kidding me he said no let's go eat it's okay we're off tonight so we met up and went and ate and afterwards let's let's go walk i kid you not we walk in the casino by a casino bar and we hear i'll go to my grave loving you it people were up there singing i'll go to my grave loving you <laughs> and we walked in and listened and enjoyed it, and turned around, and walked out. We never, That's never went cool. out to tell him that, hey, an actual Statler brother yeah, yeah. is here listening That's to you awesome. sing. It was so weird, but that is also uh, Jimmy had to borrow money off of me to get a cab back because they didn't have a card, you know. <laughs> and so he said, "Now I've got to go tell everybody that the country music star has had to borrow cash off of a bluegrass singer <laughs> to get back to the hotel." <laughs> so
0: uh, yeah, we mentioned Harold. How did you be? How did you get Harold to bring Lester Roadhog Moran out of retirement one more time well, to I, be on your record? We
1: called his son, Will, and yeah. said, Will, this is what we're thinking. Do you think he'll do it? And he's like, ah, probably not. Let's call him. So we did. Yeah, boys, you bring your recording equipment up here, just bring it to the house. I'll do it. So we did. We went to his house, got in the living room. Darren Vincent set up all the recording stuff, got the microphone ready. And he came in there and did his one liner. And uh, at the end of the song, with the banjo rakes and the song ends, you hear him go, Oh, right! <laughs> Mighty fine. <laughs> and, and, and it just made our day. And, and Harold was so lovable to us. Yeah, He was so loving with us, so welcoming, so wonderful. He and Don and Phil, they have just been wonderful, wonderful friends to us. So much so that they've come to our concerts. We've gone out to eat with them, go to their houses and eat when we come through. Uh, so, it was it was wonderful to have – because, look, he said when he quit Roadhog, they would never do it again. Yeah. And they didn't. But we got him to do it on this Bluegrass record. Man, now it's history. I'm so glad we did. Thank you, Will, Reed, and Harold.
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, everything has a season. And, you know, you always hear when one door closes, another one opens. hmm well, we talked about your time with Quicksilver. When did you realize it was time to to start a new venture that we now know
1: is Daily and Vincent? Well, I was basically thinking about what does my future look like? How long would Doyle Austin and Quicksilver go? You know, what? Well, he just up one day said, I'm going to retire? Where does that leave me? I don't want to be up in my 40s and then try to start a band. So I was thinking about retirement. I was thinking about, the whole gamut of the career, but I was also had an itch to sing and play songs that I wanted to sing and play that would not fit the Quicksilver, the Doyle and Quicksilver style, just wouldn't. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I came up with the idea that I wanted to have a band. Now, about that same time, about two years earlier, I had met Darren Vincent at the IBM Awards show with Ricky Skaggs and became friends, and we sang on some Dolly Parton songs together with Dolly, and we'd sing with, with Rhonda and, and, and different artists recording with them. And then came along an opportunity. Darren was producing a Christmas record with a bunch of artists on it. And Darren with the record company said, would you give Jamie Daly and I a song uh, on the record? No. He said, well, if I can get Dolly Parton on the record, will you give Jamie Daly and I a song? They said, buddy, you bring Dolly Parton on this record, you and Jamie can have your own song. Darren brought Dolly Parton to the record. Of course. And then they gave us our own song. And we recorded Beautiful Star of Bethlehem with just a guitar, mandolin, and, and two vocals. Brian Sutton was on guitar, Adam Steffi on mandolin. Darren and I sang. And out of all the songs on that record, it became number one for six months on Prime Cuts of Bluegrass, that back when Prime, yeah. 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 And then we started getting tons of emails, tons of fan response, wanting to hear more of Darren and I. And I don't, we couldn't figure it out. We thought, well, what we did is not really special at all. Why are people wanting to hear this? And it got overwhelming. So I told Darren one night about a year later, I said, you know, I'm not very smart. And he said, I know you're not. <laughs> I said, but I think we need to have our own band. So long story short, I started planning – but he wasn't quite on board with it. And one night, God sent me a, I could just feel it, that it was time. And I called Darren, I said, It's time. And I'm going to call Doyle, and I'm going to give him a year uh, advance notice. And I'm going to do this. And I said, Whether you're on board or not, I'm going. And uh, he said, Well, let me pray about it, talk to my wife. Next morning, he calls back, said, so We've cried about it. We prayed about it. We talked about it. We cried about it. Prayed about it. Prayed about it. And I have her blessing. We feel good about it. Let's go. So on the way home from Virginia, uh, from a show in Virginia, in January uh, of 2007, I asked Doyle if I could speak with him in the back of the bus. And, and I began by telling him how wonderful he had been to me, uh, how much I had appreciated him, and how much I had learned, and that I would always cherish my time with Doyle, Lawson, and Quicksilver, but I was wanting to leave to start my own group and he said well how much time have i got son and i said you got the rest of the year and he perked up I said oh really and i was like yeah if you want it uh i said the deal is i will do and execute my job here to the fullest but when i'm home on my time i'm going to work on booking daily and vincent and rehearsing and getting my thing up and running if that works for you for the next year for the for 2008 and if that doesn't work for you then I'll go ahead and step out whenever you want me to but I do have to get started pretty soon <clears throat> he said well you've you've blessed me i'm going to bless you let's do that he said but i probably need to find somebody at least by fall and he did and i was going on a young leaders of america trip with the ambassadors and overseas to do some of the foreign relations work and that came up in august and by then he had found someone and i stepped aside and had uh, two or three months to get ready to rehearse Daily and Vincent and get going. And our first show was Daily and Vincent. Our first paid tour date was uh, December 29th, um, 2007, on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. That's where we kicked our career off at.
0: Was that a little intimidating having your debut performance on the stage of the Opry?
1: It was a huge goal of, yeah. of ours. and And I would tell any band starting up, you need to have, number one, a great business plan. Get the best players and singers you can get. Get the best songs you can get. And get the strongest team around you that you can get. Manager, publicist, staff, booking agents, record companies. You have to have a great attorney. If you're going to do it right, do Financial it advisor. Financial yeah. advisors. Financial yeah. advisors. you got to have it. And uh, we, we we were very blessed to find those people. We did it. And stepped out and walked out on that stage of the opera, and I thought I was going to pass out. Scary. But we did it.
0: And then, uh, what, 10 years later is or is when you guys became members? Yeah,
1: 10 years later, we got a call in, uh, from the Grand Ole Opry, and they said, gentlemen, you're going to be celebrating your 100th show in 10 years, picking on the opera, and said, so we're going to give you a 30-minute segment of your own. Get whoever you want to to come play and sing with you. All
0: right. That's cool as a guess, Yeah, gets, so right? <laughs> we, we
1: called a bunch of different artists who couldn't come. We called Dolly, we called Dirks Bentley. Everybody, they were out touring, couldn't come. We called John Carter Cash, Johnny Cash's son, who came and sang. Daddy sang bass with us. Darren's mom, Carolyn, my, my dad, JB, came and played with us. And I would called mom, and Darren called his family and said, hey, we're getting a 30-minute segment 10 years. Come on, celebrate with us. My mom said, no, can't do it. Going shopping. It's like, jeez, okay. Julie, Darren's wife, said, no, I'm going to New York on a trip. Can't come. Everybody we called wouldn't come, except for Dad and Carolyn, who was going to be on stage with us. Like, well, Dad, go on. So we get there, and Marty Stewart comes out to sing with us. And we sing "Rank Stranger around one microphone. And when we finish, I get up in the mic and I say, Ladies and gentlemen, that's Marty Stewart right here on the stage, the Grand Ole Opry. Thank you, Marty, for joining us. And he grabs the other mic. He said, Whoa, 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 wait. We got a little business to take care of here, son. I was like, "Oh, Oh, okay. I thought, Oh, here it comes. Thank you for playing the opera for 10 years. Your Hunter Show, maybe bring a cake out, take a picture, applause, last song gone. Yeah. He said, Gentlemen, you know, I think you have a lot of family here tonight in the audience. And we were shaking our head like, No, nobody's here. Nobody came. They're all shopping and traveling. He said, Turn the house lights up, please. And we look up in the balcony. There's my mom, all of Darren's family, my brothers, my brother's sisters. Our good friends, George and Betsy from the Flagler Museum, Oliver, of our, John Michelle Vickery, all of our closest friends, all sit in the balcony. And I'm thinking by this time, what in the hell is going on? Yeah. That's what <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to yeah, tell yeah. it like it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking, well, I'm so confused. And he said, you know, gentlemen, if you're going to be in country music, the most important and most elite club you can be a part of is that of the world-famous Grand Ole Opry, the first family of country music. And we're just like, uh-huh. <laughs> we're just like, where's this going? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he and? <laughs> said, and we want you to know that country music loves you, country music needs you, and the Grand old Opry welcomes you. Something I'll never forget. Darren fell down. You know, he had a heart attack. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I couldn't breathe. And then, you know, you were, here I am crying, but we couldn't even sing the next song. You know, you were crying through the whole thing. You know? Something. But we left stage, you know, that night and had the big party. And we had a show the next night in, in Indiana, downtown Indianapolis. So we sent the bus and band on. And Darren and I just decided to drive our cars. And uh, so after the party, what we found was very interesting. We started getting phone calls from a lot of the Opry members. Steve Warner and Bill Anderson and and and. and and people that I, some of the biggest stars I'd never talked to before, was calling, "Welcome to our family." You know, cry all the way up the road.
0: It was something. What, what did that mean to you?
1: I think to me, my dad was on stage with me. Meant the world to me to be to be a part of that. And the thing is, our families knew two months prior. And didn't say a word. They were sworn to secrecy by the opera executives. Do not say a word. Yeah. So we went. Mama said, do you know how hard it was to go through Thanksgiving and Christmas not tell you what was getting ready to happen? You know? <laughs> uh, so it was so special to me because, you, you know, the Opry, we grew up listening to it. We grew up loving it. We grew up about it. Darren grew up playing on it. You know, it was just part of who we are, our DNA. Musically, it was our home. Whether we were members or not, we counted our, our home. And Daly and Vincent, we kicking our career off there. It was our home. Whether we were members or not, you know. And when they invited us to become members, that just that just drove it all the way to the house. And uh, then in March uh, of the next year, 2017, Oak Medicine Show and Jenny Seeley inducted us. And Celie had a hold of my arm walking out the stage. She says, now, don't you start crying tonight, she said, because I'm wearing my false eyelashes. <laughs> she said, if I start crying, they'll come off. When we get out there, and I just start boo-hooing during the induction. You know, we're walking off stage together. And she says, well, I'm glad you weren't wearing your false eyelashes. <laughs> As only Celie could say That's true Jeannie Sealy fashion. True Jeannie Celie fashion. Jeannie, Celie fashion. Yeah. yeah, what a night to remember. What a night.
0: What's it mean to you to go to the Opry and see folks, Jeannie Seeley, Bill Anderson, you know Vince means Gill, the world and to us. call you family
1: and call us? It means the world to us because we were playing it back in the days with Doyle and Ricky and Darren. Before Ricky, we were playing it with Little Jimmy Dickens and Porter Wagner and Jim Ed Brown and Gene Shepherd and Jan Howard and you know a lot of the old greats, along with Garth Brooks and Carrie Underwood. So it means the world to us to walk backstage and and. You run into the your family, Opry family, and you always stop and talk, no matter if it's Garth or And Garth Brooks came up to me at one of the parties and said, Well, let me ask you something. He said, Well, first of all, he said, Let me say welcome to our family. And I said, Thank you. And he said, What do you think? I said, Well, I got to tell you, Garth, if they called me to come out here and sweep peanuts up off the floor, I'd be out there sweeping. And Garth looks at me and he said, And I would be right behind you with my broom too. (laughs) That said, that said a lot to me. Yeah. Like his music, don't like his music, you know, it don't matter to me whether you do or don't. But as a member of the opera and a member of the First Family Country music, that meant a lot to me coming from him. Yeah. The success he's had and who he is. Yeah. And he's not a, you know, he's not a diva. He's, he's just a wonderful, wonderful man who just normal as the day is long.
0: It's funny that you mention that because I actually met him today for the first time. Today, yeah, today, wow, at the Ryman, and mm-hmm. you know, spoke briefly. Uh, all I did, just you know, walk mm-hmm. up, you know, just said, you know, thanks for all you do for country music, yeah. and uh, it's funny because you always see on TV, you know, he's, the, he was the same for that thirty seconds to sixty seconds that I talked to him as well the yeah. TV. You know, yeah. I said I played country music on the radio, plays music all the time, and he, and first thing, what radio. Where, where are you on the radio? Yeah. And I said, th- yeah. you know, Ohio. Where in Ohio? They, oh, Nutter Center. Play there all, you know, love playing there back in the day. Yeah. And, and, and it, uh, it was a great example, just like you guys are, is the, the way you treat people, the way you treat the guy sweeping up the peanuts or the disc jockey or the people, your fellow artists at the Opry, really goes a long way, in addition to the good business plans and strategies and music. Well, and all I that
1: appreciate stuff. that. And Garth is a very au- authentic person and uh, I appreciate authenticity. But I also, you might not have heard this put this way before, and I've never said it, but I'm going to say it. I also appreciate the listener and the ticket buyer and the fan being authentic, too. Yeah. And letting us be artists and present what we present. Yeah. Because we want to do music our way of doing it. And thank God in heaven he has he has support he has given us a fan base that is loyal to all faults <laughs> i mean yeah. they are loyal and they understand that Darren and I are going to try things musically yeah and they back it all the way and yeah. we we had come to the conclusion early on that we're going to play music and entertain the way we play and the way we sing and it's up to the listener and the ticket buyer the, by whether they want to listen to it buy it or not cuz if this you know if they don't want to these over here will and thank God for them because they have they have made Darren and I a career, and we love them so much. Our Daily and Vincent fans are absolutely not knocking anybody else's fans, but our fans are the apps. They rock. They yeah. absolutely rock.
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier the importance of having a good team, the importance of having a good business plan. Why do you think that is so important? And what's some other advice in in the business world that you would give young musicians that you know maybe are too Practicing's great, music's great, but I always say it doesn't matter if you can play like Chris Thiele if no one knows who you are, you know, and they're not gonna know who you are if you don't know how to spread that word you know well, why do you think that the the business aspect of things has been such an integral part of the success of Daily Vincent as much as the music
1: you can't you can't be a baker of cakes and expect to be a great lawyer. And help a band. So what I'm trying to say with that, and I'm sure there are people that bake cakes that are lawyers, but I'm saying a professional baker and a professional lawyer, you've got to get people who can do the job, who are qualified to do the job. Let me say that again. You have to get people who are qualified to do the job. So when you go and get a manager, you want a real bona fide manager. You want a real bona fide publicist, lawyer, record company, staff and team people who have experience who know what they're doing if you don't any old role will do you got to know where you're going you got to know how you're going to get there you have to be inclusive which means you got to bring everybody in around you and you got to listen to their expertise though you may disagree with it you have to listen to it and you're not always right other people are right too, and you're going to hit it some and you're going to miss it some but you've also especially in the early years you've got to lay strong foundations that will help you build on what you're trying to do you got to think in terms of 5 10 15 years down the road not just this year and next year you have got to think long term
0: that's something i've always been impressed with the daily and vincent um business plan is you guys start with goals in mind you know what no matter what it is you guys aren't thinking next day you guys are thinking next year next decade what are we going to look like are we going to be exactly where we're at now or are we going to be someplace else and if so where's that going to be why is that important
1: It goes back to the old saying, you can't get to where you're going to go unless you know where you're going, and unless you know how you're going to get there. So we have seen, you've seen it. I mean, your dad has one of the most successful bluegrass bands on earth, so you know. I'm not telling you something you don't know. But we have so many groups in bluegrass who I don't think take it seriously business-wise. And so that's why you see them only last three, four years, five they're out. you know it's it you have to have a business plan you have to and you have to remain committed to it. you have to remain committed, you have to see it through and I was told one time when we were starting up by a big artist in bluegrass um that there was no blueprint. Jamie, there's no blueprint to this. You just gotta jump out and do it, and I said, well, I couldn't disagree more. There's going to be a blueprint to, to our business and, and, our, and our brand and our band. And it worked out pretty good. So, you know, you got to sit down, write down what it is you want to be, who it is you want to be musically, uh, who you want around you, get the best, formulate a plan, think 5, 10, 15 years down the road, build strong foundations, and continue to be creative and innovative.
2: Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done, with features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS, to save 15% off your first purchase.
0: You mentioned earlier your work, uh, your diplomatic work. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think that's something a lot of folks have no clue about, and it's something you and I have talked about before. How did those opportunities come about, you know, as Around 8 ish is when you really started getting involved with those the, the young ambassadors. And why don't, why don't you tell me about it?
1: Uh, in 2000, well, actually I was 23 years old, and I was doing a show with Doyle and Quicksilver down in Yeehaw Junction, Florida, under a big old circus tent out in the cow, cow pasture. Probably a couple of thousand people there, and I always would peek around the corner and and eye the crowd because I wanted to know who I was singing to, what the crowd looked like, and I would scan the crowd, just something I still do today. And I saw this woman sitting on the front row and I said to myself, she's different. There's something different about that lady. I just knew it. I could feel it. To back up a little bit, for the three years prior, I had prayed to the Lord, help me somehow, Lord, to serve my country because I didn't go in the military. One of my biggest regrets, wish I had done that. Help me find a way to, serve my country in a very positive way that's good for America, good for the American people, and looks good for America and will help America, even in the smallest manner. And I had ordered the Foreign Policy magazine and got it monthly, and I read from cover to cover. I was studying foreign policy in books and and knew nobody in foreign policy and knew nobody in the government. Yeah. (laughs) So we get off stage, and this big guy steps up. Mr. Daly, yes, sir. Said so we have United States Ambassador to Switzerland, Faith Ryan Whittleson. She's a member of the Reagan administration. She was the only woman, the only woman senior White House official uh, senior official that is, in Reagan's White House and has served ambassador to Switzerland twice. She's been on the U.N. Security Council. She prosecuted war criminals. I mean, it just goes on. My eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'm thinking, yeah, I paid my taxes. Yeah, you know, I was thinking, what did I do wrong? I've never been to Switzerland. Oh, gosh, what I do there? (laughs) And said she she would really love to speak with you. Of course. She comes up, she says, young man, I need, she, you know, said, I'm I'm Faith Whittlesey. And she was very calm, cool, collected, and very classy, very non-pompous, you know, I need you to ha- to serve your country. I, I have something I need you to do and you're going to go with me. And that was almost like you're going to go, you know, it's like, "What in the world? Call me Monday morning." And she pulls out this card and it she's still allowed it. you know, you, when you're an ambassador, I guess you're still allowed to have these, but it had the the golden United States emblem, the seal on it, and it said Faith Ryan Whittlesey, Washington DC, the White House. I'm like, "Whoa." <laughs> So it just got real. (laughs) It just got real fast. And I get home and I Google her and I'm thinking, holy cow. And there's pictures of she and Reagan in the Oval Office together and her standing over Reagan's shoulder, pointing down at a book, reading him something or explaining something to him. It shows them on Air Force One. It shows them with their hands up the air after campaign, holding their hands up in the air, you know, waving at a crowd with she and with he and Nancy. And it's like, Oh God, this, this woman is, This is the real deal. This is the real deal. So I call Monday morning. Yes, Jamie, I want you to go with 29 other young leaders of America. And I want you to join us and meet with other young leaders from Switzerland. And I want you to discuss foreign policy. I want you to use. She said, what I need from you is your country, southern, rural American charm. She said, That's what I need from you. She said, The Swiss need to see and feel and know about rural America. And she said, I want you to come and speak. I want you to come and engage. You'll travel all over the country with all of us. You will be meeting heads of state. You will be meeting presidents. You will be meeting. And I'm like, about to have a heart attack over the phone. I'm thinking, and I finally spoke up and said, Look, 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 whoa, whoa. I'm not the guy for this. I said, I don't have Harvard and Yale degrees hanging on the wall. I barely have my high school degree hanging <laughs> on the yeah. wall. <laughs>
0: so she says, no. You got a degree from the School of Bluegrass. That's about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I've
1: got. She's like, no, you're going. And I'm like, okay. She said, we we take care of all the expenses. You're going. I'm like, okay. And private donors, you know, give money to this. It's not taxpayer money. It's it's it's. So I said, okay. She said, but first I want you to start flying to D.C., as often as you can, in New York, Manhattan. She said, we're going to go through some training. So I'd go, and we would be eating with generals. We would be eating with FBI directors. would—I mean, I mean, it was amazing the people that I was getting to know and learning. And the biggest thing she was teaching me is how to eat at a table and table etiquette. <laughs> and she explained to me, you know, when you're sitting with prime ministers or a lot of these European heads of state, If you do what you're doing right there, they consider that as rude. And she said, you know, you're representing the United States of America, and here's what you need to know. And she would teach me forks and spoons and how to hold your napkin, where to put it when you get up to go to the bathroom, how you excuse yourself from the table, how do you, you know. This ain't
0: soup, beans, and cornbread here. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's not the way I'm used to living. Yeah. And I'm glad I learned it. Now some people will scoff at this and laugh at it and that's fine if they do, but it is serious and she is right and she was right. It's etiquette. yeah, Etiquette. And it does matter when you're in those situations. And so I learned all that from her and spent time with her before we went to Switzerland. And we went to Switzerland and I met wonderful people who are in high level officials of government still today that are dear friends of mine. They come here and stay at my house when they're in Nashville and I'll stay with them when I'm out to in areas that they live in, and um, one of them today works in the current White House as a as a top-level official. So, you know, had it not been for her, I wouldn't have met any of those people, and I wouldn't have learned what I've learned, and I wouldn't know some things that I know just from being around her.
0: Um, didn't they have you use your music in a diplomatic type of way at some they of the did. meetings as well, right?
1: One of the things she said, now also, Jamie, at the end of the trip the, with the big gala dinner for all the U.S. and Swiss ambassadors and generals and the prime minister, whoever's going to be there, we want you to sing. And I was like, oh, geez, I don't know. I, they're a stuffy crowd. Surely they're going to be stuffy. She said, oh, yes, they're going to be very stuffy. She says, but try not to sing any gospel songs. It's a very secular nation, and I just don't think that'll go over. That's where I disagreed with her. And I told her so, but she overruled me until I got on stage. And so at that time, the ambassador was under George W. Bush, Pamela Williford. And Pamela and Laura are best friends. She's a very nice lady. We went to the embassy and the ambassador's residence to have cocktails and dinner and, and, and stuff, and then we went to the big gala. So I get up in this big, ornate room. There's going to be a picture of this in my book that I'm writing. I get up in this big, ornate, beautiful room in Bern, Switzerland, and these <clears throat> very well-wealthy, dressed Swiss and heads of state and Americans are filling filling the room. And I get up and I sing... Uh, a couple of bluegrass songs, and they actually start clapping and stomping their feet along and smiling real big and having a good time. Which ones did you sing? Uh, I sang at that time Ricky Skaggs' uh, "Simple Life." Yeah, and I sang I think it was Julianne, and then at the end, I thanked um, the the country of Switzerland and their wonderful people for hosting us Americans, and I went through the you know all that stuff. And I said, at this time, I would like to sing you a song that I grew up in church singing a cappella. And I could see Ambassador Whittlesey's face just cringing like, oh, my God, we're going to get thrown out of here. And she was, and and she's a very devout Christian, too. She understands. She loves the Lord. Faith's important to her, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But But she also knew what kind of crowd we were in front of. So I sang Amazing Grace, uh, all the verses of it. And I back then, I sang even higher than I do now. and I. I guess I had it up there pretty good, but uh, I sang it, and when I finished the song, everybody rose from their tables and chairs and was stomping the floor, yelling for more. I left the building. I was like Elvis. I was nervous. I, I got the heck out of there, and 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 they were kept kept screaming and yelling and stomping the floor. These are very high level officials Dign- too. Dignified, dignified yeah, people, people who yeah. who 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 don't get into the kind of music that we yeah. all love. And so, they don't holler
0: like my aunt or nothing, or, right? Yeah, or my <laughs> mom. And
1: so um George W. Bush's White House presidential personnel director was on the trip with me uh in my in 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 my class of it, and he came running back there and he said, My God, he said, You're gonna have to go back. You are gonna have to go back and sing another one. And and Faith, Ambassador Willsey came running around the corner, she said. Oh, my God. She said, I don't know what to think about this. I can't believe they're reacting like this to a gospel song. She said, go back. Our country needs it. go back. This is good relations. Go back. Sing, sing, sing. She said, tell something funny. Try to make them laugh. So I went back out there, and and I forgot what it was I sang now. uh, And I told a funny joke, and they laughed, and we left. It was a, a great success. What did that teach you? It taught me to follow your heart. Not always listen to what you're told by other people. As I said earlier in this interview, you're not always right, but you're not always wrong, and neither is the other side. So there's a balance in there, and you've got to know, and a lot of what Darren and I do run on heart and emotion and gut. But my gut told me it was the right thing to do, and I still to this day feel like it was the right thing to do. What, what did that teach you about the power of music? That it transcends the individual. It just it, 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 The power of music speaks a language that nothing else can speak whether it be government, religion, love, hate. I mean, it it just, uh, music is so powerful.
0: It had to be pretty powerful, you know, to look back and see, you know, heads of state reacting to music the same way, you know, the single mom that's going through a tough divorce is reacting to music, you know.
1: Very broad range. Yeah.
0: What's it mean to you to think that you have that same impact on people with your music that you know when you were a kid that the Statler Brothers had with you listening to that tape in your front yard?
1: You know, to be honest, I don't even think about that. I I just I the, look the, at you me.
0: can make people feel the way that they made you
1: feel. I've never thought about that. I I honestly haven't. And I think one of the reasons, Daniel, is I don't see myself a very important individual in music. I I just don't. I never have. I guess I don't take it maybe as seriously as maybe some think I should, but I still look at it as I'm a a guy from Gainesboro that grew up in a very modest um, home and been very blessed to be able to do what I've done. Uh, But at the end of the day, I put my pants and socks on like everybody else, and I just don't think about me being important to anybody or me you know I just don't you know I put things on social media um, that I hope will help people and I try to put things on that will make them laugh my big thing is I love to make people laugh better than I do anything because I think people need need laughter I need laughter so when somebody's got a great sense of humor and makes me laugh I'm I'm endeared to them immediately um, but I just don't think of I just don't think about that. I I guess. Yeah. I just don't see me being I don't see me being any of the cats meow anything. <laughs> I see other artists doing it and being it but not me.
0: Um you mentioned the the humor. Um why do you why do you think it's important to be able to make people laugh in addition to make them stomp their feet or cry.
1: Well, we're still in the entertainment business. And entertaining doesn't mean just singing and playing great notes and uh, picking great notes or singing great notes or putting out great arrangements or great lyrical songs and melodies. It also means talking to that crowd and reaching out and trying to find something deep within them that you can get out of them that they probably don't want to do. Some people don't want to laugh and I've seen those ladies on the front row that just really don't want to laugh but will put their hand over their mouth and start shaking uncontrollably laughing but don't want you to see them laughing. It's like, oh, my God, I'm laughing. I can't believe I'm laughing. I'm, you know, uh, that, that means a lot to me to see people laugh and have a good time. I want you to come to their show and want to laugh and have a good time. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. So since you mentioned laughing, let, let's, let's end with one. You, this, is a, this is a big question. What's the funniest thing that you've seen happen on the road in your, you know, 20 plus years in bluegrass music? (laughs) Some of those I'll
1: never be able to tell. (laughs) I remember early on when I was nine years old, I was playing electric bass and I had to sit on the amp to play because I was so little. I'd fall over. I I couldn't hold it. It It's too heavy for me. I was really a little guy, skinny little bony guy. And my dad and I were playing a little Hillham, a, a little store out in Hillham, Tennessee, near the house in an old general store, and it had these old wooden bucket seats that were tied together in rows but were not tied to the floor. And so these big, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, don't take this wrong. I'm not being impolitically, I'm trying not to be impolitically correct or whatever they say <laughs> it is. But, but anyway, these heftier women came in probably in their 80s, late 70s or 80s, in their nice church dresses on a Friday night, had their big pocketbooks, and they both sat on the front row and had one seat in between them empty because they were kind of you know hefty and nothing wrong with that. They're like me. They like fried chicken too probably, but there was an old drunk that would come to the show just about every time we were there, and he was a rowdy as all get out. Well, this night we're in the middle of a song, and he comes staggering down the aisle toward the stage, and I thought, oh, goodness, I'd never seen anything like it, you know nothing doing other than go over those i I could hear him say something those old ladies like hey baby you know i could just see the look on their face like they were just mortified and trying to ignore him well he sat right down in between them and i thought boy this is interesting and they just looked disgusted we finished the song and that drunk raises his his raises to his feet real quick and squalls out yeah you know and when he did, he fell back in that chair. And when he did, that whole row of chairs went over, with the old women in them. All three of them went over, and their dresses flew over their head. Their pocketbooks rolled out in the floor. They're rolling out of the seats across the floor. They grab their pocketbooks and just start beating the everlasting time out of him. And he's trying. He's got his hands over his head, and they're just beating him. We just stop. We're just. I had never seen anything like it. I was mortified. So these big guys from the back come running up there, and they get him and haul him out, and they put the benches back up, and the ladies get back in the chair, and the show goes on. But that night, that night on the way home, Daddy and I laughed so hard. We still laugh about it today. I tell that in my book I'm writing, yeah. It
0: was one of the funniest. Oh, that's awesome! Well, yeah, thanks so much for the time. Thank man.
1: you, Daniel. We appreciate what you do for bluegrass and gospel music and country music. Uh, you're a gem, and you're a, you're just you're so you're so precious to all of us. We love you. Keep doing what you're doing.
0: Well, thank you. We've known each other a long time. We it's have great. to Sit down with you. You take you. I hope you enjoyed our time with Jamie Daly as much as I enjoyed sitting across the kitchen table from him and just hearing all about his unique career in bluegrass and beyond. Jamie, as you can tell, is a dear friend And I'm so grateful to have him open up season three of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. We've got more on the way. So be sure to subscribe to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast wherever you enjoy uh, your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and that way you'll be in the know and you'll automatically get those new episodes when they come along. We've got more on the way, so be sure to stay tuned to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Thank you.